As the subject of decolonization and queer politics move into mainstream discourse, we're fortunate to have recorded a very thought-provoking academic discussion of Dr. Rahul Rao's new book, Out of Time, The Queer Politics of Postcoloniality. Rahul is reader in political theory at SOAS, and he'll be interviewed by Dr. Sean Hawthorne. Sean is senior lecturer in philosophy, politics, and religion at SOAS, and is currently working on a monograph titled Religion, Gender, and Race, a Polemic, and is also an editor of the Bloomsbury series of Religion, Gender and Sexuality. Both colleagues are key members of our Centre for Gender Studies. Hi, my name is Sean Hawthorne and I'm really excited to be here today to talk to Rahul Rao about his work, about his uh, SAWAS in general. Today we're going to be talking about his book published last year called Out of Time, The Queer Politics of Postcoloniality. Thank you so much, Rahul, for being here with me today. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, John. Me too. Well, I think maybe just by way of getting the conversation going, how about you just tell us in a few words what the book was about? I think the book is about three things. When I started thinking about it, the um, Uganda anti-homosexuality bill had just been introduced in the Ugandan parliament. And this was a very draconian piece of legislation that proposed, among other things, the death penalty for certain categories of offences. It attracted attention, global attention, almost immediately, both for the severity of its provisions, but also for the quite well-publicized involvement of mostly US-based Christian evangelical activists who were said to have lobbied for the passage of this bill. So it, it sort of attracted attention immediately, both in global LGBT rights circles, in academia, and in the media more generally. It struck me as an international relations story from the very outset because of these transnational connections. I had been working on controversies and queer rights for a few years before that. And uh, so I wanted to try and tell the story of this law and the global reverberations that it seemed to be having, both in human rights circles, but also, as I was later to discover, in international financial institutions, in relationships between Uganda and its donors, and between activists in the global north and south. So in a sense, that's what's at the heart of the book. On a second register, being somebody from India, an Indian citizen who identifies as queer, who has followed the queer struggle against Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which is a sort of corresponding anti-queer provision in Indian law, I'd long been following the struggle in India. And of course, it didn't take too much to begin to make connections between what was happening in India and Uganda, both former British colonies that had, in some sense, inherited, although I'm a little bit skeptical of using that word uh, too unproblematically, these laws from British colonialism. So on another register, the book is also a study, a kind of meditation on the afterlives of British imperialism and the kinds of struggles that that is engendering in many different places, including in Britain. I think one of the things that comes out very clearly in your book and is perhaps the thing that I kind of responded to or felt was most provocative to begin with, at least as I, you know, as I began to get into the book, was the variety of ways in which post-coloniality is read, both in the sense of, of after or the aftermath, but also the kind of newness that comes into being in that aftermath and the different ways of kind of positioning societies, engaging with legal apparatus, different forms and, and of categorization 
categorization and so on. And so I'd like to come back to that that question a little bit later on. But I think, you know, by we've kind of got the the kind of political context that brings you and the kind of transnational context that really brings you to the specific focus of the book. But I think, you know, there's a lot more going on in this book and there's a kind of clear journey or something, you know, it seems to me that in your work more generally, you've been coming to this book for quite a while. And I think, you know, by way of perhaps setting that particular scene, it would be helpful to know a little bit more about your particular background, the journey that brought you to writing this book. You've mentioned already that you come from India. Be interested to know really, you know, what was your educational background? And also, there's something that I love about books generally, and that is the acknowledgements in the book, because I think they really help to unsettle that assumption that we parade around so often. And that is of the, that a book is really a, the product of a single author. And I think in your book, what becomes very clear, even from the start of the acknowledgements, and then as you proceed through the text itself, that a lot of people accompanied you along the way in this particular journey. And I think that your acknowledgements certainly signal the force of some of the very important relationships in, in your work that brought your thought to life. It was developed in the context of a lot of love and care, it seemed to me. And, and the value of friendship is really signaled well in your text in shaping um, your thinking, but also in giving you the rest and the comfort that you needed. So could you say a little bit about how your book came to be in terms of these relationships, these wider influences, your students, your friends, your family, your broader community of colleagues as they journeyed with you? Sure. Thanks for that. Really lovely question, Sean. I've never actually been asked it before, so I'm going to answer this off the cuff in a sense. So I grew up in Bangalore in South India, where I lived for the first 23 years of my life. I went to a Protestant school, a Church of South India school, which would have been established in the 1860s as a Church of England school. And I mention this not just by way of kind of biographical anecdote, but because as readers will see in the course of this book, I become quite interested in the politics of Anglican Christianity and in the kinds of splits and tensions that have opened up within the Anglican communion around questions of sexuality. And I had these moments where I began to wonder whether I had actually experienced these splits manifest just growing up in a church of South India school through the most innocuous things such as the kinds of musical choices a teacher might have made in, you know, in, in regular chapel services and the, the sort of sudden entry of more American-influenced music in, in, in the liturgy and, and things like that now strike me in retrospect as indicators of shifts in the ways in which people were conceiving of identity and worship and doctrine uh, in this enormous institution, which is itself a legacy of British colonialism. Then I went to a very different kind of institution, and National Law School of India, which is a very new university intended to promote a view of law as a kind of social engineering. So we studied both social sciences and the law, which was a fairly unusual combination at that time. Traditionally, law had been studied in India as a postgraduate degree after you had a first degree in something else. This was a hugely formative political experience to me. It felt like going from, you know, a classic Foucauldian institution where power is organized in the way that Foucault describes to a place where we were actually trying to unpick very explicitly uh, elements of our education, unlearn in the best 
sense that we try and do in university. It was not as political a university as some of the older public universities in India, such as JNU. In some ways, I think we were quite a technocratic place. But despite that, there were communities of students who sort of bucked that consensus and were thinking very critically for themselves. Um, we had a gender studies circle, we had legal clinics, and we had a lot of students who were quite engaged with this struggle against Section 377. For better and worse, the law has been a very central terrain of struggle for the queer movement in India, and lawyers have been very centrally involved. And many of those lawyers were products of national law schools. So in a sense, I had a ringside view of some of the central players, and I've been close friends with some of them, and my conversations and arguments with them have really shaped my own thinking and my own entry into these discourses. In fact, I think the first queer sort of piece of writing that I did was for a book called Law Like Love, which was put together by a collective that comprised uh, many of the people in these circles. I, I then went to Oxford, where of course, you would expect it becomes very difficult not to think about the afterlives of British imperialism because you're walking around and navigating them and inhabiting them. And although questions of decolonization of the academy had not yet picked up in the way that they have now, it was a place where we were, I think, forced to confront the question of empire and the way in which it structures knowledge. It's probably not incidental that I also went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. So again, the question of empire and resources and complicity in the use of those resources were, were very central preoccupations. This is actually something I'm thinking about much more now in the context of a, a project that I'm working on, on the politics of controversial statues, which follows from Rhodes Must Fall in South Africa and Oxford. And then I came to SOAS, which again was a, was a massive change from, from Oxford. It feels like I've moved from very conventional to somewhat more experimental institutions in a sort of back and forth way. And, and SOAS was, was that as well. It's been a wonderful place to work on this book because in many ways, the preoccupations of people at SOAS are so continuous with those of the places and the societies and the people we work with and research and study. And I had some very important conversations at SOAS that opened doors for me, introduced me to people, especially in Uganda, where I had no prior contacts or knowledge or connection before I embarked on this project. And then I would say finally that I've really been nourished by a kind of critical IR community. International relations has not been a very hospitable discipline for the study of anything more kind of humanities oriented, which is certainly the, the direction in which this book moves. But I would say that there are increasingly spaces where it is possible to do this kind of work. The Disorder of Things blog <clears throat> was really important for me as a, as a place where we were able to talk about global politics without necessarily being imprisoned by the structures of canonical international relations. The subfield of queer IR in which Cynthia Weber has been and a pioneer was also really important. And then all of the work that's happening around race, the kind of work that Robbie Shilliam has, has been such a, a big champion of, has also really influenced me and, and this book. I love the prologue to your book, and I sort of gasped out loud right at the end, where you kind of bring those two 
the threads together where you you know you start out with kind of your encounter with Churchill's Cloud Nine play and end it with this bizarre encounter in the osteopath of um was it her grand her son, her son sorry right which was just you know one of those and in your book there are so many of these moments of just kind of you know you say your jaw was hanging open and, and mine certainly was but with regard to the prologue you kind of make it very human these kind of disjunctures or perhaps better the the fractures that surfaced in your own process of coming out as you began to navigate what you identify even then as this kind of different temporalities on the one hand, the the political liberation tied to independence in India, but also uh, sexual liberation, the kind of space, the, the time that really falls between those two moments. And you articulate in that prologue very well, very beautifully, in fact, the impossible choice you're almost faced with of, of acquiescing with what in the end seems to be this post, this colonial demand that the coming to subjectivity uh, involves both as a queer subject and a, as a post-colonial subject. And those things are not very easy, in fact, to pull apart. That in order to be precisely post-colonial, you're having to submit still, or at least having to grapple with the, the possibility of having to submit to the colonizers subjugating idiom and, and terms, the conceptual apparatus. Uh, having to become, come into being, being produced really as the properly political uh, and sexual, not to mention classed subject. And I think what you show so well and so economically is that in the very moment of apparent liberation, there's this inevitable foreclosure of interpolation, in fact, that seemed to me in the way you were writing it, it was even more acute for the post-colonial subject because of that uncompromising and very familiar colonial demand that in order to be recognised, you over there must be like me, the kind of colonial uh, metropole. My, my terms must be the ones in which you come not only to articulate your subjectivity, but to understand it and, and kind of absorb it. And of course, the colonizer's idiom can never really reckon with or indeed recognize anything which is not itself. And so it seems to me that where you start in the book is, is where we really need to start in coming to terms, not least here with what your own coming to terms in the process of coming out told you about the terms that are so much much at stake in your book, the post-colonial, the queer, the political, the nation, the inter and the transnational capitalism. And then running through those terms are the temporal logics that are implied in several of those terms and and where queer and post-colonial are, again, kind of out of sync with that, that temporality. So what's the work that you've wanted to do on these terms, the possibilities that those terms are disclosing, but perhaps also foreclosing in the fields of certainly queer international relations, but very much beyond? Thanks, Sean. I thought about the prologue a lot, as you might imagine. I was actually very nervous about beginning the book with personal story. The personal is political, the personal is geopolitical, but telling those personal stories also makes us vulnerable, I think, because it opens us up to critique, obviously, which is part of what one does when when we write about anything. But I suspect I've always had this nervousness about straddling the line between writing from personal experience, but also not assuming that autobiography is the story of the world. In, in other words, what happens to us is, is not 
is not the story of what happens to everyone. And, and trying to, to walk the line between acknowledging the importance of personal experience without it becoming a new kind of meta-narrative is quite difficult, I think. But I was also hesitant about beginning the book with a story about coming out because so much of queer theory has been so critical of this trope as a kind of standard coming of age ritual of liberation. And I felt like I ran the risk of reinforcing coming out as a kind of structure of liberation. But I suppose I ended up doing it first because the content of Carol Churchill's Cloud Nine is so uncannily prefigurative of the preoccupations in this book, the connections between empire and sexuality and decolonization. And I, I couldn't have found a better text, in a sense, to introduce this book. I was also really struck by the way she seemed to anticipate so many of the themes of Judith Butler's Gender Trouble which for many of us is a kind of originary text for the work that, that we do in queer theory. So I, I, I really wanted more people to engage with this play and to think about what it was saying and, and doing. And then I thought perhaps what I'm doing here is not just coming out, but coming out about coming out. In other words, I'm saying I may be a queer theorist who is critical of these structures of liberation, but I too have done this stuff. I'm an ordinary person who has used the same tools that many of my research interlocutors have done. And I was also struck by, and this is a slightly different point, the kind of disjuncture between critique and queer theory of coming out and the fact that people I was meeting and stories I was hearing were full of accounts of coming out. It seemed like it was really important to people, even if at a structural level, it was quite an oppressive ritual uh, in, in, in some ways and, and contexts. And I found very evocative Elizabeth Freeman's account of queer theory as not necessarily just being about the avant-garde, but also as being about what lags behind, what is considered uncool and out of sync. And so that sense of queerness was also very interesting and compelling to me. And I suppose that another reason why the play and this moment in my life was so revelatory quite apart from the issue of coming out, is that at an intellectual level, it seemed to alert me to the psychic force of time. In other words, I was coming out in my own account of this, partly because I was confused about how I could be so proudly and properly post-colonial in most respects, but so repressed when it came to sexuality and particularly repressed by the force of a colonial law. Now, the law, of course, is just a metonym for lots of other things. It's just a sign under which all sorts of other things travel, social attitudes, my family, my upbringing, school, et cetera, et cetera. But so I'm just using it as a, as a, as a metonym here for many, for many other things. So I suppose these were the compulsions that led me to write the prologue and the epilogue in the, in the way that I have. What work am I trying to do with these terms? I suppose I'm bringing post-colonial and queer in conversation with one another, both post-colonializing the queer in the sense offering a post-colonial reading of queer theory, and we can talk about what that entails, but also queering the post-colonial. So the book is very inspired by a classic post-colonial canon. Um, the ghost of Edward Said is all over it. I have a chapter called The Location of Homophobia, which is a nod to Homi Baba's The Location of Culture, but is written in a much more materialist rather than a psychic register. It's also very influenced by Spivak's work on the subaltern. And I have a chapter called The Nation and Its Queers, which I sort of envisaged as an imaginary chapter in Partho Chatterjee's The Nation and Its Fragments. I sort of wrote it as if 
I was adding another chapter to that book. So I suppose these are some of the ways in which I was trying to set up a conversation between a queer theory canon and and a post-colonial canon. And I think, I mean, you must certainly, I think, achieve that. And, and it struck me that what you were really doing was kind of concretizing and materializing some, that kind of gesture towards the post-colonial that you have begun to see in queer theory, as well as the, the move within queer theory to really almost arrest its reduction to some form of kind of identity politics and kind of anguish with, with which that debate has really played out and kind of trying to repurpose and reappropriate that term queer. And so I'm quite interested in exploring the broader intellectual um, terrain and those kind of debates in which your book is is very clearly um, intervening. It's it's obvious from the outset that Jasbir Poir's work on homonationalism and the kind of development of her, her ideas there is an important conversation partner. There are clear kind of gestures again towards Lee Edelman's No Future, Duggan's work on homonormativity, uh, Sarah Ahmed's work on queer phenomenology. And of course, we have, you know, Joseph Massad, uh, David Engen, uh, Jose Munoz is very important and critical attention to the geopolitics of queerness. And so, and so your work did seem to be in part a response to those debates in queer studies, uh, but you're really kind of changing the, the focus or the lens in your kind of engagement with Uganda and India. And so your work seems to be in part a response to those debates in queer studies that have been diagnosing the danger of queer simply being reabsorbed into identity, reductive identity politics, that it was really setting out to trouble and refuse in the first place, setting out to really refuse the complicity of queer politics in hegemonic structures. But it seemed to me that one of the really key contributions of your work is the way that you were at the same time calling out the, the parochialism of queer theory and the kind of answers that it was trying to, to provide to this particular danger, that potential of queer critique to get caught up in antiphobic, homophobic imperialism. But again, I think, you know, you really move beyond that to show the simultaneity of anti-imperialism and imperialism in transnational queer politics. So where post-coloniality and and queer, I think, are often, far too often, in fact, read as these kind of parallel tracks as you get with um, race and gender and sexuality all kind of running in the same direction, but, you know, not really kind of in conversation with you or entangled with each other. You really demonstrate with post-coloniality and queer, they're uneasy and yet necessary and in fact nourishing imbrication, or at least the potential for that with each other. So I wonder here if you could comment on your dialogue with your relationship to, but also I think what is clear are your debts to the work of the the kind of scholars, activists like Stella Nyanzi in Uganda, Akshay Kana, Gayatri, Gopinath, Arvind, Narayan, amongst others, which really flow throughout the book. And then beyond these thinkers, something that stands out in the book. And, and again, I think this comes back to what you're doing in the prologue as well, is really making sure that humans are in, in this book, not as meta-narratives, as humans. Something that stands out in your book, I think, is, is how your thinking is really provoked by the people that you encounter, by their stories you're telling, uh, the encounters that you're having with individuals and communities in, in Uganda and in India that show you the stakes that are involved for real flesh and blood people. And I think that's something we really don't see enough of in IR. So what are some of the challenges to queer politics theory, to queer activism that you wanted to pose and push? 
Thanks, Sean. I think you've really nicely mapped out a lot of my theoretical moorings in the book. And so maybe I can answer your question by saying a little bit about what I took and maybe didn't take from, from each of them. So Jasper Poir's work is a real central reference point for me, certainly in this book and in other work I've done. Terrorist Assemblages, which came out in 2007, really helped put language to the discomforts that I think many of us were feeling with post 9-11 queer liberalism and its complicities with US imperialism. And in that sense, it also helped bridge the worlds of geopolitics and queer theory, which was also something just beginning to happen in queer IR. Most profoundly, I think her assemblage account showed us how things that we don't expect to hang together sometimes get stuck together in really unexpected ways. They come together for a time. And so even though I don't use much assemblage language, I'm drawn to that insight. And I'm trying to show in this book perhaps through a more kind of materialist language of transactions and connections, how different sets of actors come together for a time in these assemblages to produce outcomes that we would otherwise find uh, perplexing, often for very different reasons that are not necessarily compatible with each other, but, but that suit them to do so at that moment. I also drew on an extensive literature on queer uh, temporality produced by scholars uh, such as the ones you named, Heather Love, Elizabeth Freeman, Lee Edelman, Jose Munoz, Jack Halberstam. And this work was really helpful in showing me how to think about connections between time and psychic life and political transformation. But of course, it's very US-centric. A lot of it is a critique of the chrononormativity of US LGBT politics. And while that's very important, I wanted to look at other parts of the world. And part of this requires us, I think, to provincialize what passes as queer theory as a kind of American studies and to see what that opens up in terms of other work. And here I found work that is taking seriously the connection between queer theory and area studies, the kind of work that Anjali Arondekar, Geeta Patel, Neville Hoard, Afsani Nanjmabadi, Keguro Macharya, that kind of work was, was more enabling for what I wanted to do in this book. But coming to the, the people that you named uh, in Uganda and India more specifically, in Uganda, I'd say three academics and writers have been particularly important to this book. Sylvia Tamale, who is who was dean of the law faculty at Makarere University and has just written a book on decolonization and Afrofeminism, was one of the first voices who was critical of this counter-discourse that the Ugandan Anti-Homosexuality Act was mostly the work of Americans. She said, look, there are Ugandan elites involved in this and we need to take their agency seriously rather than seeing this as just an imposition from the outside. And that argument gave me, an outsider, permission to look at Ugandan elite agency in this story in a way that most outsiders, I think, were not doing for fear of coming across as homo-nationalist and orientalist. So this is a tricky balance, right? How do we develop a language in which to be critical of homophobia without lapsing into orientalist narratives of an irredeemable primeval African homophobia? Stella Nianzi's influence is sort of overdetermined. Uh, she's so many things to, to so many people, you know, queer theorist par excellence, absolutely unapologetic in both her queer and feminist commitments, a huge very public opponent of the Museveni regime, has put her body on the line quite literally to express her opposition to the regime. Last month, she ran in the elections. She didn't win the election, but she, I, I think just by virtue of her 
straddling of all of these roles and boundaries has taken theory out of the academy and brought theory and and brought politics you know she sort of disrupted these boundaries that we take for granted and silvia nanyonga tamusuza who's an ethnomusicologist in makarere university whose work on oral history alerted me to how different the gender landscape in 19th century buganda was and how misunderstandings and misreadings of that landscape in colonial missionary sources might have quite important implications for how both Ugandans and non-Ugandans re- uh, think about the authenticity of particular gender performances today. In India, um, I think I may have mentioned National Law School before, both Arvind and Akshay were at National Law School at the same time that I was. Arvind is some of my fiercest arguments have been with Arvind and they have informed the arguments in the book we don't always agree on everything but I've I've really appreciated and treasured his his friendship and and the the sort of conversations we've had which have helped me really keep in touch with what has been happening in India from afar um which is not always easy to do but i think friendship is the most important way in which i've been able to to stay in touch in a sense and akshay wrote this profound and fantastic book called sexualness uh, akshay by the way is an alumnus of soas you may know this and this is a book that is written outside the idiom of sexuality um akshay is an anthropologist and has suggested very compellingly i think that there are entire realms entire life worlds in which desire does not speak does not enter into the definition of self in other words sexuality is not the only idiom and may not even be the most important idiom in which to write about desire today that's a hugely profound insight which i have to say i haven't made enough use of in this book primarily i think because i was mostly interacting with activists who do work in the idiom of sexuality in in the global south as much as in the global north and you also mentioned human story I'm not an anthropologist and I would have had so many more stories if I was if I felt like I had the training to 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 be able to tell those stories in the way that they ought to be but sometimes the stories were so compelling and seemed to be terrains of new theoretical production in their own right that I could not but include them not just as an example of some well understood insight but as literally breaking new ground showing us something that we had not seen before and those came in the most unexpected places outside of structured interviews in casual conversation and they appear in the text at i think important moments i think that's precisely what they do do they really kind of add the the points here they kind of bring to light what are really complicated ideas that you're wielding with and they do so they they come in in these moments in the book that are just so well placed because you're kind of uh, as you as you read on my experience reading was you know really kind of grappling with these complex ideas seeing you know even sometimes through a, a sort of glimpsing but not quite being able to get hold of the the ideas and then the story comes in and you're like it, it, there's a this there's wonderful clarity in it but also it kind of keeps keeps the text really kind of grounded and why this all all really um matters but i kind of wanted to go back to what you were just touching on now with akshay khanna's work on sexualness and this kind of that it's not always about sexuality a queer in fact uh, isn't always about sexuality or you know in that kind of sim- simplified and reductive way where the sexuality is always simply connected to desire and uh, can only be read um in those terms and i mean in some ways that made me feel like that's kind of 
some ways what Edelman is almost grasping towards himself. And, and so I did kind of want to ask you a little bit more about your relationship to Edelman's work, because it seems to me you're able to do something that Edelman just wasn't really able to kind of get to. And in my third year undergraduate philosophy class last week, we were again reading uh, Edelman's No Future, really just the first um, chapter. And we were really grappling with the, the question of what kind of politics and conceptual apparatus queer lens when at the very least the re- this his idea or his critique of reproductive futurity as the central organising trope of neoliberalism is understood uh, to never actually deliver on the desire that we kind of invest in in politics, that it really offers in the end nothing but empty promises which forestall the urgent present. And, you know, with Edelman, of course, it's clear that he's really kind of building off that Lacanian idea of desire. And in many ways, that's kind of directing the conclusions that he he draws. And what became clear in the conversation that we were having in the class was the almost overwhelming sense of political paralysis that the students felt when they were confronted with Edelman's diagnosis of but also refusal that the properly queer thing to do is the refusal of of reproductive futurity. But they also were grappling with their own recognition of their desire to try and fix queer something that was going to solve something for them, as naming something, as giving them some kind of direction that is a motivating, that could be a motivating trajectory to their action in the world and their orientation to the world. Now, Edelman's text is and, you know, they wrote, they're only reading the, the first chapter. It's very rich. It's very nuanced beyond simply this preoccupation with the figure of the child in reproductive futurity. You know, I think his insights into queer negativity, the, the value of its metonymic structure, its association with the death drive and, and so on, are actually ways of perhaps cracking open the richness of, of, of the idea of desire. But it seemed to me that what was most at stake for my students was really the sense of disorientation that they felt as they encountered his work, the kind of chasm that seemed to open up with the ground that was really falling away as they really begin to understand the radical implications of, of Edelman's polemic. And I think in many ways, your book is a really good conversation partner for that text, that it's pointing to the possibilities of, of queer politics, or in fact, queer futurity that's in alignment with post-colonial futurity. And it's offering an answer, at least it's certainly opening up a way that isn't Chasmatic per se, but it's nonetheless very deliberate in the disorienting effects that you express is, is your kind of hope. Now, Edelman states quite early on in his book, and I'm quoting here, that queerness attains its ethical value precisely insofar as it exceeds to that place, and here he's referencing objection, uh, the, the objection of queer, uh, accepting its figural status as resistance to the viability of the social while insisting on the inextricability of such resistance from every social structure. Now, it struck me in reading that again this year, and at the same time while I was thinking through your work, that what Edelman's glimpsing here, but he's not in any way developing is the intricate ways in which queerness and post-coloniality, as you as you figure these, really must navigate that structure which precludes them. And I think you draw that out even starting from the prologue or includes them only to the extent that colonial and heteronormative interpolations grant recognition to those who will just docilely accept and align with those 
terms and which nonetheless are not going to accede to those. So can you say a little bit about how you have thought the queer and the post-colonial together? And I mean, we've already talked a little bit about why you've you've done that, but what disorientations that thinking those two terms together really enables and, and how or indeed if in your work you've sought to express or perhaps to reconfigure what Edelman suggests is what queer politics is. And that is, as he says in a quote again, the act of resisting enslavement to the future in the name of having a life. So Edelman is really useful and enabling in the sense that his queer negativity is this gigantic, uncompromising refusal of the sort of hegemonic futurity that is sold to us by queer liberalism or indeed any teleological ideology. And that's a hugely enabling move because it kind of makes space, right? It clears the desk. It says no to that particular vision. But I think queer theorists of color, and I'm thinking of Jose Munoz's critique here, have wondered whether this is a move that comes most easily to those who are thinking about sexuality as a sort of singular trope. In other words, who are not thinking intersectionally enough. Munoz's way of asking this question is to say, who is this figure of child who's held up as the one whose future must be safeguarded, whom we must all dance around? It's not the child of color, right? It's the white child. So there is a kind of whiteness to the argument and the figural tropes at the center of the argument. My way of making sense of this critique was to think, well, okay, who can afford not to think about the future? Maybe only the people who are most assured of a future can afford the luxury of not planning, contemplating, yearning, hoping for, putting in place something. And so it made me think, well, can we accept this gesture of queer negativity and use that enormous energy to to do something that Munoz does, which is to think in terms of a critical utopianism, a utopianism which is always destined to fail, but you still need a horizon in order to, to wake up in the morning, right? So in a sense, I wanted to both acknowledge the force and the use of the negative move, but also to think about something reconstructive. And I try and do this in the book through contrasting two ways of thinking about futurity, which maybe we'll get on to talking about a bit later. So there is a kind of qualified use of Edelman, but also I think I wanted to move beyond that queer negativity gesture to think about radical utopian ways of thinking about futurity. You use the word disorientation, which also struck me as being really important, particularly when I was concluding the book. I'd been trying to tell the story of the Ugandan Anti-Homosexuality Act, and it's occurred to me that this has been a major preoccupation of my work, not just in this project, but more generally, which is that I think one of the central questions of post-colonial theory, whatever, whatever empirical situation it's thinking about is how do we account for the present? How do we apportion responsibility for the absolute state of things between the colonial past and the post-colonial present? Um, That's a very messy task. And it's the task I was trying to undertake in the book with the specific example of the Ugandan Anti-Homosexuality Act. And I found I was tracing these transnational transactions. And I felt like I was trying to tell this historical story quite clearly, but there was a fundamental ambivalence at the heart of it in that the transactions were too circular, they were too mutually reinforcing, they were too overdetermined to say with any exactness 
This is who's responsible. This is where agency lies. I felt a bit like a spectator at a tennis match, you know, looking from one to the other and then back again. And that's what I mean by anticipating a reaction of disorientation on the part of the reader by the time they reach the end of the book. And this disorientation is intentional. I play around with the meaning of the word using Sarah Ahmad's work on queer phenomenology. I think of it quite literally as dislocating something that has clearly been placed in the Orient where that thing might be homophobia, but also maybe as, as disorienting in the sense of leading the reader away from the demand for singular answers about who is responsible and what must be done. In this sense, maybe I am less a kind of classic Marxist, even though there are clear Marxist inclinations and, and readings in, in the book. There is also a move away from that, the, the singularity of the question, who is responsible and what is to be done. So that's the way in which I think I think this work might be disorienting. That's certainly the case. And I think that really helps us now to begin to perhaps move into some of the, the specific details that you, that, you know, the chapters are really kind of drawing out. And, you know, Out of Time, I think, is one of those books that many of us are going to be, you know, dipping into again and again uh, over the years. It's this real treasure trove of ideas, of interventions, of theorizations, of ways of doing things, of what scholarship at its absolute very best can be. So it's quite hard, I think, to really separate out some of the key points and ideas, given that the book itself is, or the themes of the book are very tightly enmeshed with each other. But I think now it would it would be helpful, I think, to people who are listening to this and perhaps haven't read the book yet, some of the nuance and the focus of the text. So there's three main areas. If we've got time, we might not have time to get through all of them. I would like to talk about three main areas that I think really would help to give people a, a really good, clear sense of the kind of content, the terrain that you're um, engaging with. And first of all, there is, as we've been touching on already, the complexity of post-colonial queer politics in this religio-nationalist landscape of, of Uganda, particularly with respect to the figuration of, of religion, of this kind of Anglican Christianity in this mesh. And, and let's, of course, not forget the European history, which metonymizes religion in the nation and often as the nation. Uh, so there's that. I'd like to kind of talk through that. Then the second one, and it's related, is to really work through the relationship of the politics of memory, which come up you know, repeatedly throughout the text, and the, particularly the practices of memorialization to queer and post-colonial futurity, to also actually to the future of the nation. And slightly later in your book, particularly in relationship to Dalit and trans struggles in Hindutva, India. And then thirdly, the force of what you've named here and of course elsewhere as homo-capitalism, moving really beyond homo-nationalism in shaping and orienting political temporality, conceptions of the good, productive citizen, uh, which in turn, of course, is cementing a kind of globalized transnational queer liberalism where we're back again at that impossible choice for the post-colonial queer subject, who it seems to me is really not not allowed to be either. So here, I think let's move to, to talk about, first of all, the Ugandan context that you're writing about in chapters two and three. What did you want to draw attention to in examining homophobia and queer activism in Uganda? What was the broader context that was drawing you to attend to those. I think we've touched on that um, already. But what did you find uh, in this context that was unexpected, I felt, and that was the forms of memory work that are operating across the Ugandan political scene, really positioned in these two major points with reference to queerness, anti-imperialist refusal of queerness as this kind of Western 
set of procedures and then a kind of reification of colonial homophobia. In, in the context of beginning to engage with the politics of homophobia in India, one of the things that surprised me, that first surprised me, is that I was not expecting this to be a context that was amenable to homonationalism because we were used to thinking of homonationalism as this tendency to divide the world into progressive West and regressive East. But here were these Americans who were involved in the production of this homophobic law in such an overt way that I expected this would not be a situation, this would be an embarrassment to the homonationalist assemblage. And yet that assemblage is so resilient that it found a way to frame this as also an instance of homonationalism. And I couldn't in, in retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised because this crisis was unfolding in the heart of Africa, in, the, in that part of Africa that is geographically contiguous to Conrad's heart of darkness and that is, has sort of been imagined as a kind of queer or gay heart of darkness. So all of those logics were brought to bear on talking about this situation despite the obvious transnational linkages and the globality of a kind of Christian right-wing project, which uh, many scholars, I think, have worked quite hard to illuminate. So that's one of the things that certainly surprised me, but in retrospect, perhaps I ought not to have been surprised about. But you, you also mentioned memory, and memory has been really important to me in this project because I've been fascinated by the queer turn towards the past out of this sense that the past might offer the key to liberation. And this, the, the reason for this move is that queer activists in the global south often find themselves confronted with the argument that same-sex desire or gender transgression are culturally inauthentic. These are things that come from outside, they're polluting, they're alien, they're Western contamination that is resulting in the children being recruited into homosexuality and going astray. These are the kinds of tropes we hear. And and so it's a very logical and common activist and academic response to look to the archive for evidence of pre-colonial, because pre-Western contact, same-sex desire, as evidence of the indigeneity and therefore the authenticity of such desire. At one level, that's quite a conservative move because it plays into the politics of nativism. It accepts that things that are not from here don't belong, things that are from here do. But at another level, I think we can understand it as a very understandable tactical response to the challenges that activists and um, queer subjects more generally are presented with. I was very influenced by Anjali Arundekar's work on critical work on the use, on the instrumental use of the archive to do this kind of work. She's very skeptical of the way in which we freight the archive with all our hopes for liberation. And she also wants us to take more seriously the ways in which the archive itself produces subjectivity. So we need to pay attention, she says, not just to what archives have, as if they were these neutral passive repositories of information, but also to what they do, to the way in which they structure us as subjects and, and, and produce our, our subjectivity. I'm not sure I did so much of that kind of work, but it led me to think that my role should not be to you know, emerge from the archive with the smoking gun of historical truth uh, that can then be wielded in a legal trial or some other political context as the solution, but rather to be interested in memory. And this is the point at which I also began to wonder whether memory was politically more consequential than history. In other words, I began to think maybe what actually happened matters less than what people think happened. And telling the story of why people think what they think about what they think happened, if that makes sense, might be a more politically useful intervention than attempting to set the record straight once and for all. So if people think that they 
had a pre-colonial ruler who had same-sex desires, how might that influence their views on the authenticity or not of same-sex sexuality? If, on the other hand, they think the story of this pre-colonial ruler had nothing to do with sexuality, what does that mean? If they think certain kinds of sexualities came from elsewhere, where might that idea have originated and what does its persistence tell us? I, I suppose I'm saying that even if something is fake news, to use the discourse of our own time, there is a reason that narrative takes a certain form and trying to understand why it takes that form can actually tell us something quite useful about the politics of, of our time. So in the context of Uganda, you, you sort of zero in on what you name as these intense practices of memorialized. Uh, and the and the different positions of people with respect to those practices of memorialization. So you have the kind of commemoration of Christian martyrs in Namugongo by the kind of Anglican Church, which really is kind of seen as that as its kind of origin story. But at the same time, you have the queer activist reclamation, as you've just been kind of hinting at, of King Mwanga II as this, you name him, this kind of queer ancestor. And it, it seemed to me to really be exemplifying that tension that you're identifying between the anti-imperialist and imperialist, the global local tension within which queer politics is sitting at the moment. Could you just say a little bit more about you know, more specifically about the role that historical memory or perhaps better memorialization was playing and producing the different positions here and, and enabling these different positions in many ways. And, and further, do you see any possibility for what you name sexual dissidents within the memorializing practices of Ugandan Christians who are themselves queer? To, to answer that question, I should probably in a very few sentences quickly tell listeners what the story of Mwanga and the Martyrs is. So briefly, the story goes something like this. The last pre-colonial ruler of the Kingdom of Buganda, which is the largest of the pre-colonial kingdoms that were merged to form what is today Uganda, is believed or is reported by colonial missionary sources to have had shameful desires for men in his court. These men become the first converts to Christianity, at which point they begin to refuse the king his sexual demands, and he is enraged by this and has them very publicly executed in 1886, an event which sets off a series of civil wars that ultimately culminate in his overthrow and in the emergence of a Protestant faction in the kingdom who, with the support of the British become the new ruling dispensation. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church begins a campaign to have these murdered Christians canonized, a long, slow process that ultimately yields results in the 1960s when the then Pope declares the 23 murdered Catholics saints. These are the Uganda martyrs, and they are venerated to this day. Very public commemorations of the Uganda martyrs happen every 3rd of June, which is the anniversary of the executions. Almost a million pilgrims in some years have gathered at Namugongo, which is the site of their execution, to remember their execution and their, their martyrdom for Christianity, which is how the story is remembered. And my interest in this memorialization was quite simply, if people think that they had a pre-colonial ruler who expressed a desire for men in his court before the advent of colonialism and Christianity, how can that memory coexist with the queerphobic claim that same-sex desire is culturally inauthentic. And so I had a series of conversations over many years with people who took the story of Mwanga seriously. By the way, this is a universally known story in Uganda. Virtually everybody who has any contact with the church, and that's 
the overwhelming majority of people know some or have some version of the story. So I found it a uniquely accessible entry point for beginning conversations about the normativity or non-normativity of desire. And I didn't actually ask people what they thought about sexuality or homosexuality. My questions were more simply, what is the story as you understand it? Why do people come to this place and why is it important to you? And I heard three or four different kinds of versions of the story. And this is where I think I'm, I became less interested in adjudicating between them and more interested in almost curating them and and offering up a picture of the stories Ugandans tell themselves today about why this happened and what its legacies mean for them. The four versions that I identify were, and I'll do this very quickly, but this is laid out in chapter three. One version which says the king put these martyrs to death because he saw them as political traitors. He saw their conversion to Christianity as a kind of allegiance to a rival political authority. No mention of sex and sexuality in this version. Another version was a more candid acknowledgement of Mwanga's queer, we might say, desires, but an attribution of those desires is something he learned from Arab visitors to the court. This is a different kind of displacement from the one we see today, but it's also something that we can trace in the colonial archive to the observations of Victorian ethnographers and explorers such as Richard Burton. A third version of the story was straightforward denial. We can't believe these sources because they're colonial missionary sources, and this is a story that they might have cooked up to make the king look bad in the eyes of his people. A fourth version, and this was the kind of queer appropriation of the narrative, was, well, this is evidence that we had, you know, people in very high places in the kingdom who had these sorts of desires. And that suggests that they are indigenous, even if not sanctified and legitimized or approved. They certainly have a place in, in the kind of life world of the community that conservatives are invested in denying. And even a figure like Museveni, in some moments, was brought himself to acknowledge that Mwanga suggests that these things were known within the community, even if they were thought about, conceived and handled quite differently from the way queer activists want them to be today. Is there potential for sexual dissidence? I'm not sure. In a sense, it's not my question to answer, I decided in the end. I was interested in the ways in which some people wanted to use the story and others really didn't because they thought it was too dangerous to touch for various reasons. I also became very intrigued by the possibility that queer Ugandans today might actually identify more with the martyrs than with Mwanga. Something I didn't take seriously enough while I was doing my fieldwork, but which began to occur to me more and more, especially because tragically, during the course of the work that I was doing on this project, a very high-profile Ugandan activist, David Cato, was murdered. And he began to be talked about in the same idioms that, that Ugandans used for the, for the martyrs. And it occurred to me that the martyr story offered a kind of tapestry into which queer Christians could read themselves. I'm sure that is happening in all sorts of complicated ways that I haven't been able to trace. A really interesting work on repurposing. I think it shows, you know, the ways in which memorializing practices can really kind of sediment really oppressive life worlds, but they can also really be reopened, cracked open and kind of repurposed in ways that can be much more life affirming. Speaking of that kind of repurposing, I really did want to touch on the material that you cover, particularly in chapter six, and what I thought was an absolutely breathtaking analysis of the intersected queer politics of Dalit and 
trans struggles in contemporary uh, India, particularly when aligned with this in this legal remedy, this well-established legal remedy of um, backwardness. And I wonder if you talk us through just some of the divergent ways of post-colonial queer futurity and temporality, the kind of backward futures that you take from Romberg's work is expressed in these contexts. It's really markedly different to the forms of futurity that's proposed by homo capitalism. And I guess that means you're going to have to tell us a little bit about what you mean um, by that term. What did you understand to be the value of the queer Dalit trans solidarities and the kind of emancipatory potential that was there in this instrumentalization of this kind of repurposing of backward class status and challenging this chauvinist Hindutva nationalism in the ways that they're doing. So the last uh, two substantive chapters of the book contrast two different visions of futurity. One is the futurity of homo capitalism, which is this discourse, which I argue is sort of the latest manifestation of queer liberalism, which holds out a promise of economic growth in the future if states were to recognize LGBT rights. And while that probably sounds very crude to listeners. There are actually World Bank reports that purport to lay out these connections and correlations as a way of persuading states to be more progressive on LGBT rights. This kind of discourse has been embraced by elite queer activists as a way of persuading recalcitrant states to treat them better. I see it as a kind of strategy of upward mobility, as as a kind of social climbing, as a way of assimilating into into capitalist society, as a way of uh, figuring the queer subject is a model capitalist subject in waiting. And I contrast this with a very different way of thinking about futurity, which we see in the trans community in India, particularly through its alliances and analogies with Dalitness in India. And that is a strategy where, where the trans movement is seeking recognition for itself as what is known as a backward class in the Indian context. This is a strategy not of upward mobility, but of making common cause with those at the bottom of the social ladder with a view to dismantling, demolishing, breaking, uh, or in Ambedkar's words, annihilating the, the ladder of caste altogether. And that's why it is a radically different way of thinking about the future. This word backwardness is very common in the Indian political and legal lexicon. It's used to connote caste disadvantage, and it undergirds the provisions of the Indian constitution that guarantee affirmative action to subordinate caste communities when it comes to representation and welfare. My colleague Rochna Bajpai has shown in her book, Debating Difference, how this language was preferred by the drafters of the constitution to the language of minority because of the presumption that if the backward could be pushed forward, then they would become the same as those who were more advanced and this would better assure national unity. This is not really Ambedkar's project, even though he was the drafter of the Indian constitution. His own political project was much more radical than this. He never sought to assimilate into upper caste dominant caste society. In fact, he actually leads his followers out of the fold of Hinduism by converting to Buddhism towards the end of his life, which he thinks will provide a more egalitarian spiritual foundation for the enlightened society he wants to build. But he's also not a separatist, because despite exiting Hinduism as the first law minister of India, he's deeply invested in the reform of Hindu law. You know, if we think about Ambedkar in relation to Hindu society and use the sort of the, the sort of Hegelian image of the master and slave doesn't really work because the slave here is not interested in ever aspiring to become like the master. Instead, this new Dalit subject marches to a different beat and invites Hindu society to follow his example. 
So the trans appeal for recognition of backward class status, on the one hand, we can read it as a pragmatic move, as a way of analogizing oneself to another group in order to win the same legal and political advantages. But I also think there is something about the strategy that exceeds this pragmatic logic. And I try and show this by referring quite specifically to those trans activists who speak of transition as also breaking caste. This is not something that's inevitable because there are also trans activists who are very invested in caste and in maintaining caste. But others speak of their loss of caste respectability, their abjection in a sense, as a kind of liberation. And here I see these trans activists as actually entering into the Ambedkarite vision of what backward futures might look like, not just for the pragmatic purpose of accessing welfare, but entering into that radical utopian vision in its entirety. And of course, just a footnote to all this is that I try and tell this story of what's happening in the trans community against the backdrop of what's happening to the nation at large, which is itself undergoing this tremendous transition from developing country to great power in waiting or rising power or whatever you prefer to call it, which is a transformation that I think has very overt gender tones. Um, the, this is a kind of gender transition that is in many ways in tension with the trans and Dalit politics that I've been talking about. So it's an uncomfortable juxtaposition. I don't intend it to be a one-to-one -one sort of analogy, but I think it shows us how the politics of these fragments are also the politics of the whole. Uh, this is not a kind of minority separatist politics. It's also telling us the story of the nation as a whole. I entirely agree with that. I don't know if I, uh, if you, if I ever told you, I, I grew up in India myself, you know, watching from here, what's going on there, and my own awkward relationship with with my own post-coloniality, which is of course a very different, a different one. Anxiety and anger and and despair and sorrow that I feel for this country that gave me so much, and of course, which my ancestors took so much from. I kind of feel like that where I need to be or where I am in relationship to this is really on the side of these alliances and these groups that are looking for these backward futures because I think that's the India that then is is the one is the form of post-colonial India that has there's so much hope in in that form of futurity. Uh, of course, this was an inevitable joke that we were going to have to make, which is that we're almost out of time. And so I think just to, to bring this conversation home again, it would be interesting to hear what you're working on now, what you're what you're doing next. You mentioned, mentioned in your acknowledgements that your book could only have been written at SOAS, for which you have a frankly, and a quote, frankly irrational love uh, for. And of course, I know you're speaking for many of us there. But what what's the future going to hold for you in your your work? What are you going to be working on? I I, I really feel very strongly about that. I think I could have written this book only at SOAS. There was something about being surrounded by a wealth of expertise on the parts of the world that I was interested in and writing about that gave me the, I guess, inspired me and gave me some degree of confidence that I would be able to do this because, you know, as you say, it takes a village. And I, I feel like I really drew from conversations with colleagues in the Center for Gender Studies, in my own department in politics, in, in colleagues who edit the Journal of Eastern African Studies, which was a, a really important venue for some, some of 
the work in the book. I am going to be taking a bit of a break from SOAS in the immediate future. I'm, I'm actually moving to Scotland for love, I should say, because um, my partner is based here and uh, we're trying to bridge this impossible geography in our relationship. I, made, I mentioned a little bit earlier that I'm working on the politics of controversial statues. I, I sort of had a moment where I thought everything was really happening in London, but actually it turns out that in this country, you're never far from a colonial statue. And so I'm finding that there is quite a lot to say and think about in, in Scotland, including in the west of Scotland, where I am at the moment. I think Scotland's in a really interesting place right now. It imagines itself as being on the cusp of a kind of, or at least half of it does, uh, of a kind of liberation from England. But of course, it has a history that is deeply implicated in, in the history of empire. And I, I think I, I'm interested in these complicated positionalities. So both where Scotland is now, but also where India is now, uh, a post-colonial country that is frankly imperial in its own right. And I'm interested in both of these complicated positionalities as new terrains for post-colonial theory and as requiring new forms of critique. I think the, the old arguments won't do anymore, given how power is shifting in the world and, and given the, the, the new challenges that we're grappling with all the time. So I suspect that statues will be a terrain for some familiar arguments, but maybe also for some less familiar ones. And I think the categories that are going to be more central to this work will be race and caste, because I think controversies over statues have centrally been about the assertion and contestation of racial and caste supremacy. So I'm very excited to be teaching a course at SOAS this term on race and caste, which is trying to bring some of this together. And um, my courses at SOAS have always been laboratories for the next project I'm working on. And, and so it's been exciting to think with students about, about where to go with this next project. I like the way you put that a lot. I think that that really is what makes us such a amazing, frustrating, vibrant, dynamic place is the work that we do in the classroom together, you know, with our students and they're doing with us. I'm very much looking forward to see what comes out of this. But next, I'm wondering whether you'll be able to top what is just an absolutely fantastic book out of time. It's been such a privilege and an honour to be able to have this conversation with you and really just to, to be very nourished by your work. So I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out next. Thank you so much, Rahul. Thanks, Sean. It's been really amazing and fun to talk to you about the book. We really hope you enjoyed today's discussion. For more information about Rahul and Sean and their work, we've provided links on the SoundCloud page. As well as Out of Time, Rahul is also author of Third World Protest Between Home and the World. As well as working on her current research, Sean convenes the BA World Philosophies and MA Religion and Global Politics programs in SOAS's School of History, Religions and Philosophies. 